0: Enterprise Intelligence is a weekly video series that talks to industry experts, global thought leaders and seasoned knowledge workers about how they're tackling their information challenges, embracing new technologies and moving the needle on performance. Hosted by Shiny Docs founder and CEO Jason Cassidy.
1: I'm joined today by Peter Aiken. He's a PhD and an Acknowledged Data Management Authority, an associate professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, president of DAMA International, associate director of the MIT International Society of Chief Data Officers. Peter has founded several organizations that have helped more than 200 organizations leverage data-specific savings and has been measured at more than $1.5 billion USD. Welcome, Peter. It's really great to talk to you again. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here. I I love leading with $1.5 billion USD because I hope that grabs everybody's attention. Quite often when we talk to people in information technology, information governance in these areas, they struggle to put themselves at the front of the business and in ways that are going to be impactful financially as opposed to I'm just insurance. So it seems like you found very strong ways of attaching yourself to the front of the business with respect to perhaps revenue and definitely cost savings. Maybe you could talk about is it was that a specific strategy for you or was that something just a good benefit of the way that you did business? It is
0: actually a concerted strategy. We've in the data space have struggled for many years and and if you will what happens in the data space is that we get pretty good at celebrating wow i got some cool things happening over here from a data perspective but outside of us nobody cares so unless we can connect those things on the business side to things that are back over on the data side, there's very little appreciation for what actually happens. So the the idea of hiring somebody, and it's silly, but Seth Meyers, who's a you know comedian domestically here, he actually had a little clip the other day where somebody was handing him a business card that said, call me if you want data solutions. And poor Seth was going, what are data solutions? I don't even know this. And of course, the joke was you have to call them on the card to find out what it is. What, well, that shouldn't be the way we do this? And that really was the reason for writing the literacy book, because while we've been promoting this to the choir for a long time, see if I get a a shot of the cover up in there, there we go. It's great for us to talk amongst ourselves. But really, the problem of data is one that affects everybody in the world. And we created a term, Todd Harbour, who's my co-author on this, and I, uh, the term is perpetual involuntary data donor, a PID. Now, if you're a PID, you're walking around and people are making money off of your data. And that, you know, is an okay trade-off for some people, but most people are simply unaware of the trade-off in the first place. So the idea of putting value first is really key for everything that's happening in our domain. It's fun to say you can do great things with data and all sorts of digitization. Even take the term CDO. We think it's the chief data officer, but actually there are more chief digital officers out there than there are chief data officers. So there's, there's what we think ought to happen and what is actually happening uh, around this the closer we can tie those things to value the easier it is for everybody to understand what's happening so if we've got a largely data illiterate population and therefore largely data illiterate set of management that's on top of our organizations we need to educate all of them in order to come up with the types of solutions the types of decisions that need to be made the investments that need to be made in these areas let's talk about the education because
1: it seems to me like Anybody can go to Home Depot and buy a hammer and a chisel, but only specific people can make beautiful sculptures and art with that. And I feel like it's the same way with data. A digital officer can buy as many tools as they want, but you do need a specific strategy and skill and I'll call it education to follow on your words in order to actually execute with those.
0: Let me give you a, a kind of an interesting example, Jason. You've of course heard of Salesforce.com, which is a of, wonderful piece of software. Everybody likes it, uses it, good stuff. I've run into 13 companies, literally the last one was last night. So it was 12 if we'd been talking yesterday, where they have put in Salesforce.com and then decided to clean their data. Now, You and I know that's not a great recipe for success. Many people, for example, say, oh, yes, well, particularly if it's data that people can update themselves, they'll do the best job because they know their data. Actually, all of our studies show that letting people update their own data makes data worse in the long run. Not that people are bad or trying to do things wrong, but not having the background in this area makes it a real challenge. So you end up with things with, you know, two names in a one name field or characters. And as the Canadian zip codes have letters in them, whereas American do not. Simple things like that can cause all sorts of problems, challenges all the way around. And when we end up with the situation where we're looking to the population to be helpful, and that's really the direction that we need to go. There are a fine number of, excuse me, I should say finite number of data scientists, professionals like you and I who work in this field, but they've not been taught it. So I'm going to to take your hammer and and chisel analogy and change it just slightly. It's a very good analogy in terms of the artwork. But what we're really talking about are putting Lego tools together. One of the stories I love to tell is I worked with a group of 100 chemical PhDs, very smart individuals. Each of them, just for describing the situation, were making $100,000 per year. It's a non-trivial investment, about $10 million in a research and development function. And their goal was to find things that they can do better and make the engines run faster, better, and cheaper all the way around. And those tests that they run cost up to a quarter of a million dollars a year. We went back and looked at the things they were doing. These are smart people, PhDs in chemical engineering, but one of them was taking data on digital computer A and turning around and re-keying that same information on digital computer B. There's your hammer and nails right away. And they didn't even know that much. Uh, Again, I'm not picking on them. They've never been educated. And as an educator, I can say that the US at least based education system is woefully inadequate. The only thing we teach people at the undergraduate level about data is how to build a new database. So is there any wonder that we have way too many databases out there because That's what we've taught people how to do. Just an interesting note, since I know that we're crossing borders here, the Canadian CPA Society has been in touch and is very interested, believing that their CPAs might make chief data officers, might be very good, well-qualified data officers. So they're working very hard on that particular problem.
1: I love, as as we're talking about this, at no point did we mention SharePoint or Hadoop or some technology. We're talking about the people in the process, in the ecosystem in which they work, and then how do you make that available digitally? Perhaps, how do we normalize the data to make their function more efficient? Uh, And Why is it that when we talk to people, quite often they go straight to the technology instead of the people processing?
0: Once again, I feel a slight responsibility in that. I've been involved in the creation of two federal laws. Uh, The first one was the law that created the CIOs. And quite frankly, in the early 90s, Computers were getting out of hand. There were lots of things running around. Automation was exciting. We had Moore's law in effect that was taking the the, capacity of the chips and the cost, increasing the capacity twice each year and decreasing the cost by half each year. This is a wonderful set of, of curves to work in, but federal agencies all around, we're spending lots and lots of dollars in a more or less unconstrained fashion. So the first law, the Sarbanes uh, Sarban- actually, Klinger-Cohen uh, law was the one that specified and said, first of all, there's one person in charge, that'll be named as the chief information officer, and that you have a goal of making sure that the technology investments that you invest in are also at the same time oriented towards your organizational mission. If it's not, why are we doing it? And I can't say that it has been a huge success there have been some some post studies of how the law has been in effect and things like that and probably what we've done is we've slowed the growth curve and we've made people more aware so at least people in our federal government are aware that it is against the law to do otherwise given that the second law was something called FIPA the federal evidence based process act and that came out interestingly enough in the middle of the Trump administration so probably the most unscientific administration we've ever had in the states here actually passed a very nice scientific law mandating now that we know a little bit more about the process, we now need to separate the technology from the asset that the technology manages. Just the same way as well, you have accountants that would keep track of trucks if you were in the trucking industry or salespeople if you were in a sales industry, we need to make sure that we can keep track of these large piles of data that we have because they are needed to be seen as an asset of the organization. Eventually, I'm convinced that all governments will get into the process of selling data Within personal, you know, constraints. Again, probably don't want to sell my Netflix record out. Although the government certainly could get it and, and, and could do it. Although that's not government information. So maybe we'd have maybe my 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 uh, responsiveness tax records or something or my DMV records. All of these things are already sold, but they're sold on an ad hoc basis back and forth, and that's really not created the marketplaces that we're looking for in order to do this. So these two laws have now said, look. There are good ways of doing it, and we are at least going to require people who are responsible for this to operate on best practices. And when they get to best practices, now you start looking around saying, "Okay, so what are the best practices that we have out there? And there's a couple of very good ones that we can certainly look to and try to come along with it. But none of this gets to anybody outside of your and my domain. We understand our conversation here. This is great. We've got one and a half billion people out there with a mobile device connected up to the internet, which is really a supercomputer, and they don't know that they don't know. And that's the area we need to focus on next. If we're looking to find bad practices, I'd rather have one and a half billion people looking for you than 15,000 or 20,000, however many of us there are.
1: The scale will avail the... The magnitude of the problem, obviously, it already has, and the efficacy of the solutions. That scale, it's, it's, what do they call that? The, the law of large numbers is that it's given a big enough population, it, rare things are going to happen. And if you need to suss out issues associated with your data, a big population is going to help avail that pretty quickly.
0: I have to, to give a shout out to my undergraduate class that I had this semester. We were talking about the vaccines and the effectiveness of them, and we're all experienced in this right now. And so I asked the question, how many people have actually had problems with the vaccine? And at the time, the answer was six. And then we said, OK, so what does that have a percentage? Well, that's a 0. 0.0001 percentage of the population that's having trouble with them. If my undergraduates can get this, we can actually try to get to the point where the rest of the world can understand this as well.
1: As a spectator to the American scene, I don't want to be a, a big indictment of an education system, but I will say it's not human nature to understand, like going back to Bernoulli and in those kind of principles. it's We do a really bad job of figuring out the num- numerator and denominator of things. We act on emotion instead of that. And I love the idea of the evidence-based decision-making. And maybe you could explore a little bit more why this is novel. I think we know. But, why is this a novel concept that you start with the data and then work it backwards to conclusions rather than start with an intended collusion and a conclusion and then try to find data that supports it?
0: Of course, this gets into Daniel Kahneman and his Think Fast, Think Slow book. We are all biased in many different forms. There's nothing wrong with being biased, but being aware of our biases is the part that allows us to overcome that predestination, that that predefined outcome that we have. So the way the law is written, it says that if you're going to let's say that you're working for the Department of Education and you decide that school type A is better than school type B, whatever those happen to be. It is now against the law in the United States to make a policy decision changing from one side to the other unless you first specify the piles of data that you're going to be looking at, a priori, and the model that you're going to use to put that data in so that the decision-making process is open and transparent to everybody. And it's a wonderful law. I'm not sure most of the people who are involved in it at this point understand it. Uh, The law also had some things in there that said, by the way, you can't have a CIO that serves the same role as a chief data officer. Those functions need to be separated, at least in the federal government by law. We've now got a wonderful experiment where one-third of our economy is going to be governed that way, and we'll see what happens. I was at a, a data governance conference in San Diego last week, our big annual data governance and information quality conference, and we asked the audience how many are involved in data governance in their organizations, and the most popular answer was one an army the of federal government <laughs> they're now looking at multiple people at teams so we may actually have a situation where the federal government is able to do better than the private sector and lead the way in these areas
1: what is our level of readiness for this it it completely makes sense but from a technology and an industry perspective are we ready to start merging these concepts or is there a lot of work to be done there yet
0: There's work to be done and that's, again, the rationale for a broadly based book on data literacy. One of the things that you'll see if you go out and Google a couple of phrases, if you say, for example, data is the new oil, you'll see over 5 million hits. By the way, I think that's a really poor way to describe data because that's only a push function. You only use oil. You don't tend to plan to reuse oil. Data, of course, we want to plan to reuse it, and that requires a completely different supporting infrastructure. So I like to take the the idea of somebody saying, let's call this the new oil and say, let's call it the new soil. Now, one doesn't just gardens go around and fling seeds around and hope that good things happen as a result of this. Instead, you carefully prepare the bed. And the other part of it that's different is that you don't plant things on Monday and hope that you can eat them on Friday it takes time. It takes effort. There's a a concerted focus around that. And, and, This way, just by changing conversation slightly in the oil mentality, all I have to do is get more data. And there's a whole industry that's focused on it. It's called surveillance capitalism. You wonder why the sleep number bed company would want to connect your data to the Internet. And of course, the answer to that is, well, if you don't read the fine print and nobody does, let's be very frank, I don't read them. You don't read them. And by the way, we can also say don't even bother. There is no point in reading those because virtually 100 percent of them say we will share your data with X, Y and Z and others. As soon as you say others, you can stop reading because there's no way that you can have any knowledge or make any informed decisions. But let's go back to sleep number bed. Why would you want sleep number bed to be having information about the number of people who are occupying your bed, the time of day? the amount of liquid that was potentially produced in that? We're getting into some gross areas here, right? And very, yeah. Potentially and
1: hugely invasive. Scientifically interesting, but it's certainly not the business of a
0: for-profit company who's just trying to sell you more, like maybe. Let's go back in. Let's just say that a company, we'll call them banana instead of another fruit, was able to assure you that if they got that information, they can actually improve your sleep experience by that. That's a, a promise, and maybe it'll help people down the road, kind of a thing. But if you had faith in that company, not taking it and saying this specifically is Jason Cassidy's data, but if it's aggregated appropriately and and anonymized in in a fashion and you could help, then I would be much more likely to share the information and and work within that. And and luckily there are some companies that are working out there in the area of diabetes. There's another one with Parkinson's, which has to do with, you know, shaking Mm -hmm. and a lack of motor control. And they can now measure this. They used to measure it by a doctor observing somebody walk and they would grade them on a one to four scale. Now with this Digital machinery that we have, they can actually very precisely calibrate what's going on and catch Parkinson's onset a lot earlier, as a result of exactly that type of a process. So there are models that can be done; they are not known, and if you don't even know the existence of it, you'll never go looking for the alternative.
1: Yeah, I, I like that approach, and it reminds me of when I was talking to Ankabuki and with privacy by design, the idea that you need to start with how is this going to drive more. Uh, positive brand awareness with my company. It could drive more revenue when people have a great deal of trust. Like I'll invest anywhere where I have trust. And I'm even willing to give up my data where I have trust. But where it's ambiguous... For me, it's a hard stop, and for others, I know that they don't care, so they'll just let it go, but I have a feeling that most people are just going to wind it back because there is very little trust in
0: industry. Take another example. Whatever rectangle you happen to carry around with you, you might ask the question, are we allowed to share data? Well, they are now giving you two choices. One, while I'm using the app, or two, all the time. But even while I'm using the app, we found one app that collected data, location data on an individual 14,000 times a day. That's an enormous number. If nothing else, your battery is gonna run down faster. So that's the practical uh, nature of it. But why on earth would somebody need to know 14,000 times? Now we're talking about not just that Peter went to the video store, but Peter went to the video store and spent two hours in the video store and put things on the shelves and took them back. And again, it's going to give us more information, but it should only be done through informed consent. And we don't have a system now where anybody can get informed consent at this point.
1: What would you say, because you're an educator, a researcher, these things, what, what would you say to people that just say, well, that's too hard. Industry has to keep going. You're going to cost us money. Like it's clearly you're saving people money. Clearly you're affecting the front of the business. But I do hear this idea of let's do hard. We can't have legislation like that. Not yet. Uh, what do you say to that? people like that?
0: It didn't take The young kids long to learn how to use these. Literally, that was just a matter of push button. We've done really good things with the interfaces, whatever it is that's going on in there. If we start off young. So one of the things we did in the book was to say, again, everybody wants to be more data literate. What does that mean? Okay, the proper definition from Wikipedia is learning how to manage and use data and thinking of it and all these things. But it's a very subjective definition. What we did is said there are some very specific objective characteristics of people. One of them is people are children, okay? Again, subset of all people are the people that are under the age of 18 or whatever the level of consent is in your respective domain, okay? We can't force parents to do things, but we can encourage parents and say, if you're going to give the individual access to the internet, there are some conversations that probably ought to take place. Second level up from that is an adult. When one reaches the age of majority in one's respective country, one assumes additional responsibilities that do not accrue to children. So there's a great one. Once again, we can't do anything about it, but we can put societal pressure on it. Again, if you had a colleague who was forever getting hacked and you get all those messages that say, Hey, I don't think this is from you, but it looks like it's from your email address. And so eventually you're going to block that individual if they don't get control over what's going on there. And I think the same thing will happen in society. But where we can start to exert control is knowledge workers. Now, my definition of a knowledge worker is somebody who works with data. And so consequently, they need to know more about data and when organizations are faced with two individuals who are similar otherwise in characteristics pick the one that's more knowledgeable about data and you're going to raise the base level of literacy in your organization all the way around i'm pretty sure that within five years hr will be screening for that the same way they currently screen for other certain characteristics yesterday i was talking to todd chernikoff that was saying something very
1: similar to this saying We are we give people really firm definitions of what their data are, really firm definitions of what it then means to be information definitionally to be what it means to be knowledge. And then it it makes it easier for people to understand their responsibility and understand their roles with respect to data, because data seems so esoteric to begin with. But to really codify it definitionally
0: is is a wonderful place to start. Was that by accident that that you found that or is that? Very calculated in that sense, because the the real challenge, of course, is that data does not obey the laws of physics. And so consequently, people have a harder time relating to it. Again, you tell them it's terabytes or petabytes or zettabytes or whatever, and and people go, I'm not sure what that is. If you tell them it's the amount of words in the Library of Congress multiplied by six or seven times, they start to get a picture. But even that, it's it's still hard. And so we do need some different ways of grappling with these issues. And the more we make society generally aware, the better off it'll be. We don't want to leave this to some sort of priesthood that says, we'll take care of it all. Don't you worry about a thing. People
1: forget that when, in order to have an individual freedom, all of a sudden now you have societal contract that we need to agree on in order for us to interact and behave but it feels like a lot of people are more than happy to just abandon the societal contract but they want the freedom so it, it seems as a gateway to data literacy we need to at least agree on the social contract regardless of whether it's law or not we need to at least agree on what's important to us
0: is that true I think, and I think it's a a very good model for it. Again, if you had a, in our country, 16-year-old is the age that you get to drive a car. Hey, kid, here's a, a Tesla fob. It just happened to snow outside, but good luck. Not a good idea. And these consequences in this case can be significantly worse than dying in an automobile accident. And if anything, we've put probably too much emphasis on the technology, the promise of technology. There were a number of articles when we started this. Big data thing about ten years ago. Nobody knows what big data is. You can't define it. It's you know volume, variety, and velocity, right? well How much? It just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But worse still, were a whole series of articles that appeared in Wired magazine and other fairly reputable outlets. I think there was one also in Wall Street Journal that said we don't need to do the scientific method anymore. We can now literally sample everything. Well. No, we've got AI algorithms that look at COVID and also a person presenting with asthma and deciding that's actually a good thing, that you'll probably have a really good outcome on that. Now, the reason was because the AI learned that people who have, who present at the emergency room with asthma and COVID generally have good outcomes. But the reason for that is because when somebody shows up at the emergency room and says, I have asthma, the doctor says, you need to go straight into intensive care. And they usually will survive that particular piece, but they learned the wrong rule. And if we just let the systems learn the wrong rules, we are having all sorts of problems.
1: I like exploring this and I find it fun that we've gone not too far afield, but it's we, we've gone in an area where we're not focusing on the specific technology. What we're talking about is the dire outcomes and the great outcomes that go along with the data literacy, with the idea that if you can align with reality as best as you can and come up with a model, then you are going to get good outcomes associated with it. But if you prejudice the models, then you won't. And to me, the only way to evaluate it is it, it triples down on the scientific method, is that you're always measuring the prediction against the continuous measurement that you're making going forward because as soon as you yield and say we don't have to do science anymore because we got this then I, I think in a sense that's where everybody has ever gone wrong with anything is when they say we've come up with the rules and let's just let the plates spin on their own and walk away eventually they crash because quite frankly you always need to be touching them you always make carefully making sure that they're actually still relevant and still active in the same way so it, it, is but that just a fear desire that humans have to say we
0: finally got it right no uh, everybody wants a solution and and technology Advertises itself as we have a solution. Uh, The challenge is, of course, they do have solutions to certain types of problems, but those problems represent only one fifth of the types of problems that we are dealing with in this. Data awareness is a cultural issue. And that means you have to focus on people and process issues to the exclusion and in replace of technology. Again, I'll just give a very silly example, but it's a, a a real one of some big retail company. And I watched them fly in three loads of planes uh, every week of consultants to put in their master data management solution. And we'll just forget about the fact that MDM outside of our domain actually means mobile device management. So they're not even thinking in these terms. But when I'm walking the halls in a year or so at the same place and I overhear, I didn't know where to put the data. So I stuck it in the MDM. You know, that's wrong. I'm sorry. Just everything about that statement says that they have spent $60 million that they now are going to have to go back and rebuild from the very beginning because they didn't architect it correctly in the first place. These planning issues, and, and we've known this for a long time, the more upfront planning that you're able to do, the better your project will succeed in the long run. And yet we're not teaching people that they should even think about planning from the data perspective. So if we don't teach them, why are we surprised they don't know it? It beyond makes sense, and I love that we covered
1: so much ground on the impact of this, and less ground on yeah. You, you need to, you need to use this, or you need to have this many units of Hadoop, or whatever. It's quite frankly, none of those things matter if, if you don't if you don't get it. And I love the fact that we we are talking today, Peter, because your website is actually something that gets referenced quite often by our salespeople and our technical sales consultants because it doesn't have. The technical answer to the question, it does have the philosophical and societal answer to the question as to how do I need to think about my data and what is the impact if I'm not giving it the proper consideration. Maybe you could talk talk about where people can find you, where people can find more about your book and your
0: websites and in the work that you do. And, and the brag on it too. I'm. If you had told me that a book called Data Literacy would have ended up in the top one hundred thousand best-selling books at Amazon for more than six weeks since it's been released, I would have just fallen over. So apparently, we have struck a nerve, and 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 people are interested in this. I've read the other data literacy books that are out there, and they're they're very good from the motivational perspective but they're very light on the specifics what we tried to do here was focus in on the specifics and and you ask about the website the real question is most people don't understand that bad data plus anything awesome whatever that happens to be is still going to be poor results And so consequently, the idea that if you don't get that foundational piece, it doesn't matter what technology that you have. Garbage in, garbage out. And we've known this in IT for years and years, but we haven't taught it to people. And we need to teach it. This needs to be inclusive of an integrated program that starts out when you're very young so that you understand that there are good people on the internet and there are bad people on the internet. You need to be able to tell the difference. Uh, There's people you want to share things with and people you shouldn't share things with. And that there are ways of controlling costs around it. So if we hit those three dimensions, you're probably starting to get to the right type of an approach we haven't done it for 30 years and we have literally two and a half billion people out there with mobile devices to them are susceptible to becoming a PID, a perpetual involuntary data donor
1: i think people when they originally said garbage in garbage out they used to think that was like a bad optical character recognition and then you're not going to get the outcome that you need from the technology I love that you've attached it to the people and the process and the environment and ecosystem in which they work, which needs to generate the the data quality through the human aspect and through data literacy. And I thank so
0: much for sharing it with me today. A pleasure to speak with you, Jason. Happy to do it in the future. And we'll meet up at some point when I can get up to Toronto. Yeah, for sure. All right. Thanks, Peter.